0: Oh, Father, we praise and thank you because the promise of this song is true for each of us in Jesus Christ who are the redeemed in this room. Lord, it is well with our soul because our sins are washed away in the precious blood of Christ, the slain lamb for us. God become man, dwelt among us, was crucified, buried and raised, was ascended and ever rules and lives right now making intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. And in his holy name we trust. It is well with our soul. Because we have one who perfectly represents us to the Father, having satisfied the necessary conditions for our salvation, sacrificed the perfect, sinless, spotless sacrifice himself for our eternal redemption. It is well with our soul. And now as we stir our faith through the means that your word and your spirit supplies and these songs that we have sung, We look forward to the day, Lord, that all history and your people are marching forth unto the day of total, complete redemption, Lord, where this world is transformed into the image and intent that you are directing it to according to your decree and holy will. This fills our hearts with praise, expectation, anticipation, faith, and joy. Therefore, it is well with our soul. As we turn our attention now to your holy word, I pray that you would impress upon us the realities of the gospel and the realities that our future promises realize through the gospel, that we might be encouraged and strengthened and emboldened and equipped for the duty and the joy of glorifying you as we walk out our life of faith with works to follow, which you have done to transform our souls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise God. What a glorious opportunity we have to open up the Scriptures together. I'd encourage you to do so in the Psalter with me by turning to Psalm 75. Psalm 75 will be our text today, 10 verses, that give proper thanksgiving, if you will. That will be the title of today's message, Proper Thanksgiving. Perhaps a subtitle could be Thanksgiving According to Asaph, the inspired psalmist who wrote these words. And as you're turning there, I'll give you an aim as well. The point of today's message, the aim, the goal of today's sermon is to point our souls in the direction of true marvels. To point our souls in the direction of true marvels. What is a marvel? Something that leaves you amazed, fascinated, captures your attention, fills you with an almost spontaneous overflow of worship, praising that thing or drawing your attention to that thing, your undivided attention, sharing with joy your experience of that thing with others. This is, these are all ideas connected with the term marvel. Our souls are built to marvel, but our souls are also caught in sin and we're not unfamiliar even as Christians with the flesh that still likes to cling to us. Therefore, the things that we are wont to marvel at, the things that capture our attention and steal away our joy and Fill our minds with thoughts and meditations are sometimes things that really are no marvels at all. But the Word of God corrects our affections, therefore. And today, let us look to Psalm 75 to point our souls in the direction of true marvels. Would you stand with me with your Bible open this day as we consider the Holy Word of God in reverence? Today's psalm comes to us under the title, To the Choir Master. According to Do Not Destroy, a psalm of Asaph, a song. Here we have Psalm 75, 1 and following. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. Selah. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed And he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Verse 9, but I will declare it forever. I will sing praise to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. This is the holy word of God. You may be seated. So today it seems fitting for us To consider passages of Scripture like Psalm 75, this time of year, as the Thanksgiving holiday season is approaching. It's interesting because our text today really has this purpose. The the purpose of this song is to give thanks to the Lord. Verse 1, we give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. Adding to this, Asaph continues, we recount your wondrous deeds. The purpose of Asaph's worship song, therefore, is to give thanks to the Lord for his wonderful actions in history, his wondrous deeds, his providence, his name, his renown, his fame, his glory, his purposes, his accomplishments. This song would serve well on the lips and in the hearts of the faithful at this time even as they considered an altar of the Lord's delivering power. Oftentimes when God would deliver his people, they would set up a memorial. And when they came to that place, it was a visual reminder of a spiritual reality. And it, meant, it was meant to trigger their souls to remember, to feast upon, to redirect their attention to true marvels, what God had done to save them. And the altar represented that memory. Or perhaps this song would serve perfectly at the memorial feasts of Passover, you remember Passover was commissioned as, uh, as a way, as a means of feast, to remember what God had done in delivering Israel out of the death grip of Pharaoh into the promised land, which represented their freedom in Christ, the freedom of the redeemed in Christ. Perhaps, furthermore, this song would fit perfectly on the heart and lips of the faithful at the temple itself. The temple, again, as you recall, were typological Reminders of the nearness of God's name and His wondrous deeds of salvation were there as part of the worship to capture the attention of those who realized the significance of the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, the law laid up in the holy place, the candlestick, the altar of incense, the beautiful curtains, and all that was there that bespoke of God's glory. Psalm 75 also serves as a course correction for wayward affections, for distractions, to get us back on task in our mental capacity and the things that we think about and are interested in. It is, after all, it seems to me axiomatic. It's like a true state, it's just a, a truism that we would be most thankful for those things that we long for the most and are most motivated to pursue. We don't have necessarily, I would go on to say, a huge problem with thankfulness Um, in this country. Let's say in our society, people tend to be thankful for at least a superficial appreciation and gratitude when they receive something that they long for. I submit to you that a greater problem than lack of thankfulness may well be what we long for. If we receive what we long for, we might have, you know, a a sense, a reaction of appreciation for it, but if it is not the true marvels, the things that are truly beautiful and acceptable before the Lord, then our gratitude, our thankfulness at that point is nothing more than the worship of an idol. You see, people thanked Baal for sending rain when it was God who sends rain on the just and the unjust, even Baal worshippers, God in His providence and long-suffering is sometimes will, will bless with their crops blooming. But they're ascribing this power to Baal, to Ashtoreth, to some pagan deity. Might be an act of gratitude, but it's certainly idolatry. And so it is with us. Psalm 75 therefore serves as a course correction for wayward affections. So that we end up being thankful for the things that we are motivated to pursue. And those things that we are motivated to pursue are things that God truly endorses and God truly loves. Asaph reminds us, as the covenant people of God, that a thankfulness deferred is the mark of a distracted heart. Being caught away, interested in, and thankful for things that are not of the Lord is really a problem. It's a distracted heart. It needs a course correction. And Psalm 75 serves to bring our attention back to the things that are truly worthy of praise. Look at his wondrous deeds. Think in your mind's eye about the wondrous deeds of the Lord throughout history. Our mind, just as we grasp uh, our memory of even the scriptures themselves, of God's delivering hand and bringing his people through amazing circumstances with supernatural, miraculous saving power, as we begin to add that catalog in our minds of the deliverance of the Red Sea, the saving of Noah through the waters of judgment at the great flood, uh, how he delivered Joseph and through him established Um, The family line that would continue um, through Judah, through the Messiah, we we see his hand through the patriarchs. As we recall this context all the way through the prophets and even in ages of great apostasy, his word was preserved sometimes hidden away in the nook and cranny of a wall in the temple where evil forces might otherwise have been wont to destroy. It's discovered by the king. The nation moves to repentance. God uses one man Daniel to bring a message of correction to a pagan king and eventually God's people are able to return, rebuild Jerusalem and on and on. As we think of these things, not to mention our own life and the 2,000 years that have attended as we've noted recently marking the 500th anniversary of the Reformation have attended the way of the faithful since the apostolic age, how should our hearts respond? What would be an appropriate anthem, song of gratitude, of thankfulness for these kinds of wondrous deeds? Well, certainly Psalm 75, may we appreciate this chapter to the fullest extent according to its spirit-inspired design. Let's consider it this morning under four uh, main words. And this is our heading today, thanksworthy works of God. What are the thanksworthy, if you will, works of God that are celebrated, that are featured in Psalm 75? Let me give you four Ps this morning that I think might summarize them. First, providence. Providence is a thanksworthy work of God. What is providence? We shall see. Secondly, proclamation. The word of God declared is a thankworthy work of God that he would make himself known, that he would reveal himself and reveal his ways. Thirdly, perdition. That would be swift, sure, and certain judgment, and thorough judgment upon wickedness. That is a thankworthy work of God. And finally, promotion. The lifting up, the answering of prayers, the exalting, the uh, bettering of the estate of the redeemed. Thankworthy works of God. First, let let us consider providence in the first three verses. In our text today, listen again to Psalm 75. As the author draws attention to things that we ought to be thankful for. We give thanks to you, O God. Verse one. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters, and all its inhabitants it is i who keep steady its pillars say law god's providence is featured in these first 3 verses and it is certainly a thankworthy work of the lord that we behold asaph is not the only one to say so a quick cross reference in revelation 15 testifies to this fact here we see the seven angels and seven plagues are featured as the signs from heaven are great and amazing, as we see in Revelation 15.1. But there are those who recognize the praiseworthy acts of God in His judgments and in His mercy, and they gather before the Lord. And we see them here in this image and the number of its name, uh, and also those we see who, in verse 2, had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass, with harps of God in their hands. So there we see the context. What's a song that they could sing, or what is the occasion for their thanks? They sing the song of Moses, it goes on in verse 3 the servant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying, and here's their hymn of praise Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, and your righteous acts have been revealed. Saints gather before the throne of God celebrating the providence, echoing the themes of Asaph's great psalm, Psalm 75, where he has said, We recount your wondrous deeds. We give thanks for your name is near. What is providence? Providence is a theological term that's meant to summarize a concept from Genesis to Revelation, all through history. And it should fill our hearts with great joy. It should spontaneously inspire worship. It is a great marvel. It is something we should be thankful for. Providence is, quite simply stated, the working out of God's plan or decree through His means in time and history. Providence is the working out of God's purposes, His plan his decree, through his means in time and history. There are more detailed summaries of providence that we have in some of the confessions. The Westminster Confession is is great, it's deep and it's probing. I'll just give it to you to whet your appetite for more study perhaps in the future. What is providence? Well, the confession associates providence with these kinds of thoughts and these are all just collated from Scripture. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold direct, depose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by His most wise and holy providence, according to His infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of His own will, to the praise of the glory of His wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Praise the Lord. God is working out His plans and His purposes through all the means at His disposal, His means in time and in history. Brothers and sisters in Christ, these means include sin itself. These means include principalities and powers. The means by which God is accomplishing His plan includes rebel nations and authorities that seek to exalt themselves above the knowledge of God. God's means include even our own sin, our own wickedness. That which drove us to Calvary was a reality of our own depravity. And when we confessed our sin, we placed faith in a God who is merciful and just in that He grants us forgiveness on the payment of His Son's blood. We confessed faith in a God who is rich in grace and gives us what is undeserving in Christ our Lord. But how were the plans of God moved forward in history to show himself to be gracious, merciful, just, long-suffering, kind, and holy? Yes, even through the means of our own sin. This is providence. This is a marvel worthy of our thanks. This is a marvel worthy of praise. When I use that word marvel, I'm just curious. Outside the context of this message, if you're just in casual conversation, What's the first thing that you think of? First thing I think of, and even though I'm not a comic book fan, is a brand name, Marvel. There are comics that extol things that are, uh, you know, uh, what would be the right, where spectacular displays of fantasy, where humans achieve great feats, to the point where in Marvel comics and superhero movies that have become more and more popular in our day, it's almost as if... They exalt, well in fact it is, as it's as if they exalt man, certain individuals, to the quality and the position and some aspects of their character and their abilities to a godlike state. And what is this? It's merely a counterfeit. We don't worship a man-god. The Greeks did of old. The pagan Romans worshipped man-gods. We worship man-gods today in our sin and in our wicked society. Humans vested with very skilled abilities, experts that we place our trust in or groups and collectives and bodies and governments that can ensure peace and prosperity for the future, man-gods. The true marvel is the God-man, only one, only one vested with both the attributes of a human and the attributes of God, and this is Christ himself, the only one who could bridge the gap, the true marvel. So think of that when we use this term. Uh, Psalm 75 points our souls in the direction of true marvels, not the cheap imitations, not the junk that we celebrate and are thankful for when the trailer of our favorite movie finally comes out and we have a little escapism where we feel uh, for a a moment we let ourselves imagine that our problems could be solved by a man-god. Nothing like that. When we turn to the Scriptures, it reorients our attention not to the foolish schemes of man, but to things that are truly worthy of our attention like the providence of God. The Lord who upholds, disposes, directs, governs all creatures, actions, things, from the greatest to the least, according to the free counsel of His will, to the praise of His glory. This is what Asaph means when he says, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. He goes on to say, having focused on his name and his deeds, as we associate these with his providence, he says that they are near. And what this means is that in his experience and the experience of his people, they have personally come in direct contact with the fame, the power, the glories of God. They have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. When they tasted the Passover meal, they were remembering that they were the providential heirs of those who were rescued from slavery in Egypt. Those of whom God called out with particular redemption, placed His seal upon and gave them His gospel and His word and His call to be a nation that would one day be a light to the Gentiles. His name was near them because they were his people his name was near in the temple worship his name was near in the proclamation of his word the name was near in their glorious lineage and history and his name is near us his name is near to us in the gospel of jesus christ in the words that we have this day in his preservation of of our souls in the miraculous resurrection from spiritual death that we have experienced in jesus christ His name is near us. There is an appointed time that Asaph celebrates in verse 2. In God's providence, we can trust that he will judge at his appointed time with perfect equity. At the set time, verse 2, that I appoint, I will judge with equity. And you'll notice a shift in the pronoun from we, from the perspective of the worshipers now, to the first person from the perspective of God. The people worship the Lord because the Lord says, I appoint, I will judge with equity. At the set time that I appoint, I will do so. Hebrews 9.27 tells us that it is appointed to every man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. Uh, The scriptures teach us that we are looking forward to a judgment day where the balances of right and wrong will be perfectly leveled according to God's standards, and that what has been Overlooked for a time, what has been allowed to continue in God's long-suffering will one day be set perfectly right on the day of reckoning. This is a thankworthy work of the Lord. The future justice of God, judgment day on the horizon, the fact that there is a day of reckoning for everyone. Now, we can only approach His throne confidently having been tra- having Christ's righteousness been cr- credited to our account. And we will endure that great day if we are in Christ and only if we are in Christ. But for those who seek to steal as great thieves and greatest crime of history, the glory of the Lord, there will be a day of reckoning. And this is a work of God for which we ought to praise Him. We should praise Him that He studies the pillars of the social order which rest upon faith in future and final and perfect justice. In other words, a people are content and secure and sane when they recognize that even though great evil exists in this world now, that God will one day set the balances right. And while we are too weak to bear this burden of justice, the shoulders of our God are firmly squared beneath the weight of the justice and the just demands that this wicked world places on his perfect knowledge. But being omnipotent, all powerful, and omniscient, all knowing, there is coming an appointed time where he will set everything right. And there will be nothing that escapes his holy attention. It will all be addressed. This is his work in history, in part, and we trust in the future. Perfectly. Thirdly, we see this concept of the pillars of the earth, how God steadies them in His providence. In verse three, when the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keeps steady its pillars. Think of the nuclear arson that developed countries boast. A lot of times, it will we will marvel at the power that man has, just a button away from self-destruction. We might think we look at like a hydrogen bomb. And we imagine what it might look, the devastating fallout if it hit a major city in the United States, what that destruction might look like. I've heard reports, I can't substantiate them firsthand, but during the time of the Cold War, people said that there was enough nuclear weapons in store in the great powers of the earth to destroy the populated areas of the world multiple times over. The population centers of the world could have been incinerated a number of times. And to think that corrupt men, drunk on power, greedy with envy, insane and self-destructive in their sinful pursuits, many times, per Romans 1, almost wholly given over to their wicked depravity, just a button push away from this kind of destruction, why are we still here? Why are we still here? When there's a Kim Jong-un, when there was a Soviet Union, when there's America for that matter, it's not as if we are immune to corruption, why are we still here? Why are are we not incinerated in a poof of nuclear smoke? It's because when the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is God who steadies its pillars. There is a restraining hand on the tyrant so that he does not push one more button than God has sovereignly intended that would bring destruction on his neighbor. Sometimes God allows it, and in his means, it moves forward his decree, but more often than not, the vast majority of the time, God restrains the hand of the wicked tyrant and studies the pillars of the earth. His interposition, God's gracious interposition, restraining the course of evil, provides the baffle boards in the hull of this great titanic ship of global society so that it doesn't sink into oblivion. And we can thank the Lord for this. You're going to thank the United Nations for this? You're a fool. Are you going to thank our State Department for this? You're a fool. Are you going to thank you know, some sainted figurehead and hero of our day for this? I don't care who it is. You're a fool. Only Jesus Christ has the power and the ability and the authority to study the pillars of the earth. No president, no policy structure, constitution, administration, none of them. It is the hand of the Lord that is responsible for our life even today. We were watching a special on geology this week and they were showing different areas of the world that they could only assume large amounts of water, unprecedented, cataclysmic, momentous floods. And of course, it was a secular show. And uh, every time I heard something like that, like um, in one single cataclysmic event, an unimaginable, vast uh, amount of water Something unprecedented in modern times. Every time I heard it, it was like an amen to Genesis eight, you know, where the flood is recorded in the Bible. Now they would not say so, but this, in fact, was the truth. The floods' waters of God's judgment had threatened the earth, and it was. You talk about it it would pale, or it it makes nuclear destruction look like child's play—the kind of destruction this earth has endured. But during this time. God's means of studying the pillars of the earth was an ark constructed by a man and his family that bore the seed of, the fu- of future life, a, a man and beast, in that relatively tiny container. Yet God studied the pillars of the earth and did not destroy all mankind. And you and I can trace our heritage all the way back to Noah and his family. This, these are the providential works of God that are the true marvels. That even though the world deserves utter destruction, God studies the pillars. It is His sovereign hand that does so. We are studying the thankworthy works of God, His providence. Let us move secondly to proclamation. Verse 4, I say to the boastful, who is speaking? God Himself. In His word, He is proclaiming the truth. Not a single word is spurious, not a single extra word is added, not a single falsehood, not a single filler word is ever spoken when God declares His holy truth. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And the instant it proceeds from the Lord as His spoken word, it is eternally binding on the hearer for everyone for all time. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness, comes lifting up. We find in Psalm 75 that one of the thankworthy works of God is His proclamation of truth. And we find that His word is universal. It always bothers me when people say, oh, they're just acting like sinners. I I expect sinners to act like sinners. Does God expect sinners to act like sinners? Well, how does God approach sinners? Well, you know, you're just doing what you do. The Lord says to sinners, I say to the boastful, do not boast. The Lord commands sinners by his word to repent. The Lord does so in a way that will hold each and every one of them accountable by his spoken, by his recorded word. He says to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. We ought to echo him. We ought to be so thoroughly convinced that every word of God is absolutely binding that we would say to the boastful, To ourselves and others, do not boast. Do not lift up your horn. Do not tempt the Lord your God. Do not take lightly His providence. Do not underestimate His power. Do not place faith in any other pillar-steadying promise. His word is universal. Scott Oliphant, a teacher of apologetics, is fond of saying that everyone is in a relationship with the Lord. Everyone. Believer and unbeliever, what does he mean by this? Everyone is in a relationship with, with the Lord, uh, yet there are two categories. In the one category, we relate to the Lord as our Savior, and the other category, we relate to the Lord as our Judge. But there is no one that is outside of a relationship with the Lord. That is a covenant. There is an agreement that is either satisfied in Christ, or it's broken in our sin, and the relationship will proceed according to the terms then of the covenant. The unbeliever needs to, needs to realize that he is in a relationship with the Lord as the condemned beneath the true and righteous, all-powerful judge. And as we said before, there's coming a dime, a set time, according to Psalm 75, where he will appoint, that is the Lord himself, and will judge with equity. Are you ready for this? Day, we can ask the unbeliever, do not boast, do not take it lightly, Do not lift up your horn as if you could evade this eventuality. It will come Throw yourselves at the mercy of a mighty, powerful judge and find in him salvation for your souls in his Son, Jesus Christ. There is a metaphor that is used here that might be strange to us, but it's more common in Scripture. Do not lift up your horn. What What does horn mean? Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. The idea of horn is uh, associated in scripture with strength, honor, power, dominion, glory, fierceness. It's the means of strength. Saw a little video this week. Uh, My wife was watching little animal videos. You you get those little thirty-second clips of a cat bouncing something around, and it's kind of funny. Well, there was this little scene from the savanna that I saw, and it was a cape buffalo or a water buffalo or something. A big ox with big horns, let put it that way. And there was a lion, you know, a fearsome king of the jungle beast. We often think of the lion. Well, this buffalo reached down with his head. He happened to catch the back of that huge cat behind his hind legs or something like that with his horn and just a little flick of his neck. And that cat was end over end doing 360s, 15 feet in the air, and then landed. And I thought, horn versus lion. Who's going to win this battle? It was... A, it was easy to see that the strength and dominion of this cow, if his horn was used in that way, could defend him against the strongest of beasts. And this is a picture of the metaphor, that horns are the implements and weapons that are on wild beasts. They give them their power and their dominion. The beast relies on them for safety, for defense for status in the pecking order among his peers, for strength, honor, and fierceness. He finds his identity and his uh, longevity through his horns, as it were. So this is the idea of this horn metaphor. And so when the scriptures say, do not boast or do not lift up your horn, the, uh, the intent is, don't pretend that you are a wild beast who can flip up the line of Judah in an instant. That's not the case. The Lord's horn will absolutely destroy you. And you will be crushed like a toothpick underneath the wrecking ball of God's justice. And it is nothing but self-deception and absolute foolishness to think that because you did this over here, you accomplished that over there, that it was anything except God's providence allowing you a little leash. But you have no horns to exalt above the Lord. You have no strength in and of yourself. You have no dignity, no honor, no, no fierceness, no power, no dominion in and of yourself. You are a broken sinner who serves at the pleasure of God Almighty. And at a moment, the snap of his fingers, his fingers, as we've said, it's pointed for you to die. And after that, the judgment. And who can show any horns before the great white throne of Jesus Christ, our Lord? No one, I say, no one. There's another metaphor that's employed under proclamation. The Lord, one of the praiseworthy works of the Lord, is proclaiming His truth, that He is sovereign, He is Lord, He is powerful. We see this through the metaphor of horn, the foolishness of exalting such a thing that you think you have above the Lord. We also see this in verse 6. It says, For not from the east or from the west, nor from the wilderness comes lifting up. And the imagery is here, the idea is that people look to all these different places for help and hope and salvation. They look to the east, as it were. They look to the west, as it were. And it says from the wilderness, and in the Hebrew, um, the wilderness could be synonymous with the deserts, Arabian deserts of the south, they tell us. So the, I, the, the notion is, the poetic idea is, there is only one direction, true north in this picture, where your help comes from. We see other passages in Scripture picking this up. Psalm 121.1, 1, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? And the answer uh, comes in the worship song there. My help comes from you, maker of heaven and earth. If you need help in this earth, if you need salvation from that which attends your way in this earth, it can only come from one place, true north as it were. It comes from God and God alone. The maker of heaven and earth is your exclusive hope. This, of course, is echoed in the New Testament when Christ Himself says, "I am the way." You know the verse: "The truth and the life." No one comes unto me comes to me uh, apart um, unless the Father draws him. Is another passage associated? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Christ uses this exclusive language, identifies it with Himself, reiterating. These themes all the way back that Asaph was exalting in Psalm 75, that we don't look to the east, west, or south. We look one direction for help, which begs the question, where do we look to lift our spirits as a people? Where do we look? I mentioned a few examples where people look, but add to these maybe uh, patriotic identity, maybe technology, political leaders. Those are common these days. Maybe our founding documents, our Vaunted history, maybe a booming economy, healthcare rallies, legislation. Those are kind of all social category, places that we look for to lift our spirits as a people. Maybe we're more introspective. We look for books and testimonials and self-help programs and me-centered gospel, quote-unquote, presentations. Maybe we look to escape through entertainment, sports. Maybe we look to close relationships like family and friends. Are these primary ways to lift our spirits? And if any of these capture our attention or hold our affections or we take joy in over and above or in competition with the glory of the Lord, they are nothing more than looking to the east and to the west and to the south and they will not ultimately satisfy. Instead what they do is like a vampire, they bleed out our affections so that we have nothing to present to the Lord by way of love, appreciation, joy. And this is the great tragedy of idolatry and the things that we waste our attention on that aren't found in Christ. You may not have all that much left over by way of love for the Word of God. Maybe it's hard for you to just break into the Word and to feed upon it. Maybe gathering with God's people, maybe lifting worship songs of praise, if you're really honest with yourself, feels like more work than it does joy. It could be because you've wasted all your affections looking to the east, and to the west, and to the south, and to the wilderness, instead of preserving your heart and affections for the only way, place true hope can be found. Invest your joy, your assurance, your security, your love, Your affections in the Lord. He is the only one that is thankworthy. He is the only one that is praiseworthy. Look to him. Thirdly, perdition. The works of the Lord that are worthy of our thanks include his judgments. Verse 7. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed. He pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs we ought to thank the Lord that this is the reality of the future situation we've touched upon it in part but note here with more detail how the swift severe thorough and certain judgments of the Lord are a source of thanksgiving for Asaph he recognizes the true causal force the true power behind the rise and fall of empires the true reality of circumstances behind what we see happening before us, and he knows it is the Lord. He knows that it is the Lord who is responsible for putting down one and lifting another up. I've referenced this. It's helpful by way of illustration, but recently, if you pay attention to the news at all, great, formidable culture shaping, kind of like kings and people who are in positions of notoriety and authority people look up to are collapsing one by one by scandal right now. Um, I don't know if I can find it for you, but I was reading some godless rag, some magazine, and it was talking about how swift in some of these circumstances the quote-unquote day of reckoning has come for leaders in Hollywood. Uh, Here it is. This is speaking of Weinstein, the recently disgraced uh, Hollywood mogul. Weinstein's Old Testament-style reckoning. This is in Variety magazine. I happen to find this quote. Weinstein's Old Testament style reckoning has been delivered with digital era speed and fury, which is likely to cause more problems for harassers who have yet to be exposed. Close quote. I I've never read anything like that. Like I say in a secular god hating media outlet? Old Testament style reckoning? Truer words have seldom been spoken, especially by an outlet like that. What this author is inadvertently recognizing is it is the Lord who executes judgment. The reason he uses Old Testament style is because he, he recognizes how swift and decisive it was. And he's not the only one, and this is in our time. Now, there are those who seem to get away with things for a long time. Psalm 73 testifies to that. You know The fat, sleek, old sinners, the old wicked and reprobate that die fattened for the slaughter. We've talked about them, but there are other times in the course of our own history where we see a glimpse of the power and severity and swiftness of the judgment to come. It's in the hands of the Lord. His praiseworthy works include the power to lift up and to cast down in a moment's notice. We see this picture, foaming wine. This is another interesting picture for us. In the hand of the Lord there is a cup of foaming wine well mixed. What does this mean? Well, it's a metaphor that, might they, again, more familiar to the original readers perhaps, but the idea of foaming wine is that wine is active, has active ingredients in and of itself. There is a, a chemical reaction, if you will, in its fermentation process, as I understand it, that's taking place when it is in process. And Another phrase you could associate with foaming wine is the boiling blood of grapes. It's the idea of an intense and potent and deadly Caustic substance. So wine was seen as almost having a life of its own and having a power of its own. And this is the idea of foaming wine well mixed that he pours out. Maybe a good equivalent for us is like strychnine or maybe napalm. What is napalm it's that flaming substance that was so horrifically devastating when bombs would be dropped and there's this flaming jelly and you would beat at this substance and the fire would not go out it would just eat through your skin and destructive horrific weapons like this were deployed in, you know like vietnam and places like that that napalm is something like foaming wine well mixed and the cup of the Lord's hand is full of this devastating judgment, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs, that sovereign napalm. These properties of wine are associated with the wrath of God, his foaming vengeance, the day when he finally determines he will glorify himself in demonstrating his justice by slaughtering, destroying his enemies, every one that has not bowed the knee to his lordship. This raises the question, how can Asaph be sure that that cup is not hanging over his head? How can Asaph be sure that this foaming wine well-mixed, this flaming napalm of God's wrath is not just seconds from falling upon him? Well, the answer is perhaps even clearer to us. Though the faithful knew it By their faith then. And in Matthew 26, we have our answer. Matthew 26, Jesus, you remember, he's in the garden of Gethsemane. He instructs his disciples to watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing and the flesh is weak. Again, it says, verse 42, for the second time he went away and prayed, My father. If this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. He goes and prays again in verse 45. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. He prays. In verse 38, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here, he tells his disciples, watch with me. Going a little further, verse 39, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. To which cup does Christ refer when he prays if there be any alternate way to secure the redemption of his people, that he might be freed from it? I see it as the same cup in Psalm 75, brothers and sisters. The foaming wine, well mixed. The flaming napalm of God's wrath. He pours it out on all the wicked of the earth, that is, those who do not trust that Christ drank the cup of God's wrath for them. How is Asaph, how, are we? how can we be assured that that cup does not hang over our head if we trust that Christ drank the cup of God's wrath to the dregs for us. That is the only way that the otherwise wicked of the earth will escape draining it down to the dregs themselves. And that situation is no less than hell eternal. The perdition, the judgments of God, born on Christ's back and promised to those who do not repent are praiseworthy works of God. Finally, this morning, let us consider promotion, the lifting up, the exalting as it were. In the New Testament, it says that God's plans for us are such that we rule and reign with Christ. That God not only washes away our sins, but He is glorifying he's sanctifying us unto glory. And when we are glorified, we will join as vice-gerents, co-rulers, alongside Jesus Christ. In this position, this Amazing, privileged position of glory revealed in the gospel. But this was anticipated in days of old. I will declare it forever, Psalm 75, 9. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. Verse 10, all the horns of the wicked will be cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. This theme of lifting up, or in the original Hebrew, I'm told, something like promotion, exaltation, getting <coughs> rising to a higher state far more than you could imagine, something you could not do yourself. This gracious elevation of your existence, your experience, it's a repeated theme in the text. It says in verse 4, do not uh, lift up your horn. That's the same word there, the idea of lifting up. So don't lift up, don't exalt yourself. Uh, Secondly, do not lift up your horn on high, again, verse 5, or speak with haughty neck. Lifting up, promotion, exaltation, glorification. This is something that is uniquely the authority and power of God to do. Verse 7, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another, promoting, exalting, glorifying, privileging. And then finally, verse 10, the horns of the wicked will be cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. I'd like to turn you to one closing passage this morning in 1 Samuel Our worship text today, Joel read for us, was from Mary's song, sometimes called the Magnificat, in Luke 1, 46-55. And the praiseworthy works of God that she celebrates upon the knowledge that she will bear the Son of God, that she will be party in this way to the Incarnation, causes her to overflow with spontaneous song of praise that picks up the themes of Psalm 75. This is not unique to Mary, however. Hannah, when it was brought to her attention that she, by the power of God's sovereign and supernatural hand, would become, would bear a child, she also prayed. And listen to her words 1 Samuel 2, verse 1. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord, my strength is exalted in the Lord, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life, He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich, He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust, He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Notice here. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the power of His anointed. So you see, Hannah, Mary, Asaph, they all recognize in similar language the thankworthy, the praiseworthy, the gloryworthy works of God in His providence, in His proclamation, in His perdition, in His promotion. And thus each of them contributed to Scripture with their own worship song. Let us contribute to the glory of the Lord by heart stirred to worship by the same themes, lifting up our praises in this place and through the week in your own times of worship, the glories of God as King, as Savior, as Judge. Thank you, Lord, for your great and wondrous deeds. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for revealing to us what we would be utter, utter, otherwise utterly blind to, that your glory is, is moving forward, marching unhindered through the course of history, establishing your decree through every single means at your disposal by your holy providence. We've seen this in our lives, using even our own sin for your glory and showing Christ to be an able, powerful, gracious, merciful Messiah and ransoming us from the death of sin unto the praise of your great name, joining the throngs that have gone before, the Hannahs, the Marys, the Asaphs, and the saints in glory who sing of the praises, who sing praises for the glory, Lord Jesus, that you have displayed through this earth because you so deserve them, focusing their attention on the great and true marvels, offering proper thanksgiving to the throne of grace for saving them and directing the affairs of this world according to your perfect, preordained plan. We thank you that you have declared these things to us in your word this day. We thank you that there is ultimate justice at the end of history. We thank you that in Christ we are raised up and seated in heavenly places and will rule and reign and no longer fear the cup of foaming wrath hanging over our heads. All of this is due to Jesus Christ, our Lord. We give him glory and praise. We thank you, Jesus, for your power and for your salvation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have exalted us. We, unworthy, lost, decrepit sinners, now are pleased to rejoice in your wondrous deeds lord encourage us with these words to be more consistent in our praise and bring us here shortly lord because there is not enough moments in the day and there's no greater joy than gathering together to offer to you the sacrifice spice of praise that you deserve for all that you have done in the name of jesus christ we pray amen